0: Great, Jonathan. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, As ever, notices are on the uh, notice sheet and they're also going to be on the screens uh, as well. So do please take a look at that. There's just one uh, or two to draw to your special attention. Uh, On uh, your uh, seats, you probably can see these white envelopes. Uh, Many of you will know that uh, Steve Wilby, our verger, is going to be retiring very, very shortly. And uh, these are uh, so that we can all contribute a gift for him. Uh, to say thank you for all the hard years of work he's put in uh, for us here at, uh, at Trinity, so do please give generously, and if you'd, um, if you'd like to give something, uh, just pop it into the office or into the, um, into the, uh, the giving uh, box uh, as you came in, that'd be really good. Uh, I should also say as well that we're having a Harvest uh, Supper event on uh, Friday the 16th of October in the evening, and uh, the tickets are going to be available for that, I think, after the service as well, so do please uh, come along to that, it should be good. Shall we stand? And let's declare our faith in God using the words of the Creed. We say together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again,
1: Our reading this morning is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 15, and can be found on page 1191 of the Church Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may, not, you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is the word of the God.
0: Wonderful, Jackie. Thank you so much for reading. If you'd like to keep that uh, passage open in front of you, that would be a great help to me as we come to look at it. Shall we pray? Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Well, Jesus, how we praise you that that is a trustworthy saying. It was just as true when Paul wrote it all those years ago as it is for us today. And we pray that as we uh, look at what that means, we look at what what that means for ourselves and for our church, uh, you would speak to us, you would make us obedient, and you transform us for your glory's sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, Some people believe football is a matter of life and death. I am very disappointed with that attitude. I can assure you that it's much more important than that. Does anyone know who said that? Bill Shankly, yes. Late Liverpool manager Bill Shankly. Uh, Nobody who heard Bill Shankly speaking would be in any doubt whatsoever what was the most important thing in his life. And if you had any doubts, you could ask his wife who uh, knew that for herself. Uh, Whatever it is, whether it's football, whether it's rugby, whether it's family, whether it's work, whatever it happens to be, all of us have something that makes us tick. It gets us out of bed in the morning. It gets us going. It enthuses us. It excites us. And what's true for individuals is actually also true uh, collectively for churches as well. Every church has something that drives it. Something that keeps it going. Something that, that, that keeps it existing. Uh, for some churches, it, it will be numbers. Everything they do will be, uh, will be focused around getting bums on pews, basically. Uh, whatever they do will be, will be done because they think that it will draw people in and, uh, and, and boost up the numbers. Uh, sometimes, for churches, it's traditions. That's the thing that shapes them and drives them. It's what they've always done. The past is always the hero, And they just keep doing the same old, same old, same old, because you can't uh, give up on your traditions. Uh, Whatever it happens to be, it will affect everything, whether we like it or not. Uh, It will affect the worship, the style, the kind of the attitudes of our worship. It will affect the preaching, what they preach about, how they preach, what they choose to say. It will affect the attitudes of the members to uh, one another. It will probably even affect the coffee as well. If you're worried about the money, then you probably won't spend much money on the coffee. If you're worried about attracting people, then you'll probably spend lots of money on it, because you want good coffee. These things shape us. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks at uh, Trinity, you'll know that we started a series uh, in the, uh, the letter, Paul's first letter, uh, to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor uh, of a church in Ephesus. And, uh, and really, the, one Timothy, essentially, if you want to sum it up, it's a plea to churches to be gospel-driven. So that the thing that drives them, the thing that shapes them above all else, to be the gospel, to be the good news of what Jesus has done for us uh, on the cross. That's the thing that Paul wants to be shaping us and all churches. He wants us to be gospel-driven. And in these, uh, this little section, I think he draws out two implications of what that might mean uh, for us in two very key areas. Uh, The first uh, thing I think he points out is that when our testimonies are gospel-driven, they will display the work of Christ. When our testimonies are gospel-driven, they will display the work of Christ. Why is it so important that the gospel drives a church? Well, because if it doesn't, it's only a matter of time before something else does and something else that is false. That's the situation uh, that uh, Timothy is facing in Ephesus. Uh, several false teachers have sprung up, and they're teaching uh, false doctrines. You can see that from verse 3 of um, chapter 1. Well, we don't know exactly what these false doctrines were, but we, we can have a bit, a bit of an idea from what uh, Paul tells us. They involve some speculation, myths and, and genealogies of some sort. It was sort of speculative stuff. Perhaps even worse than that, uh, it was about self-righteousness, legalism. This idea that somehow, if you just worked hard enough, you could work your way back to God. You could be good enough to God by your own works. Uh, Clearly, this teaching is a problem. It's false. It's a departure from the truth of the gospel that Paul has handed on to Timothy But it's also problematic because actually it's useless. (laughs) Verse 4, Paul tells us, uh, these things promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. Uh, Instead of transforming lives, all it's doing is confusing people. Instead of bringing the glory to the Lord Jesus, it brings glory to humans. And what better way for Paul to expose it to Timothy and to the Ephesians by using himself as an example, a worked example, by showing how the gospel of grace transformed his life and can transform the lives of all he believe it. There was a well-known uh, actor, uh, writer, I think it was a few years ago now, who entitled his uh, autobiography, Dear Me. Isn't that what we'd all like to call our uh, autobiography, Dear Old Me? But such a title, I think, would have been absolutely unthinkable to St. Paul. Uh, He could never forget what his life had been before he met Jesus. And you can see here, can't we, in our verses, how he summed it up. It's a pretty damning assessment. Uh, He said, uh, verse 15, I am the worst. (laughs) The worst of sinners, verse uh, 16. Uh, He carries on. uh, He gives us some details of what that looked like. Verse 13, I was once a blasphemer. He was cursing the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus. He was a persecutor. He'd attacked uh, the Lord's church. He was a violent man, a, a really unpleasant character. He was the worst of sinners. That was his life before he encountered the Lord Jesus. And yet, he says, what happened? Verse 13, I was shown mercy. Again, verse 16, I was shown mercy. He didn't get what he so richly deserved why was that it wasn't because of anything that he'd done but because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners he says verse 15 Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners people like Paul people like you people like me God sent his one and only son into our rebellious world to do on our behalf what we could never, ever do for ourselves, to die on the cross for our rebellion, to take the punishment that we deserved, that we might be brought back to God to enjoy everlasting life with him. It's grace, just as the video was saying, grace, full and free. It's totally undeserved. The totally undeserved favour of, of God, shown to us in Jesus. It's almost so wonderful, isn't it, that we might, believe, uh, might doubt that it's actually true. Maybe Paul's got it wrong. And yet he assures us, no, he hasn't got it wrong. It's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Verse 15. This isn't myths or speculation, unlike the false teaching in Ephesus. This isn't a load of rubbish. This is truth. It happened. It's real. You can believe it and you can trust it. It's not dependent on our own efforts, as the false teachers were suggesting. It's true, not false. And it's done, not in need of doing. So, no wonder, is it, that Paul finds himself breaking off into spontaneous praise from verse 17. To the eternal king who deserves glory and honour forever and ever, verse 17. When we grasp what Jesus has done for us, what else could be our response but to sing out in praise to him? and live our lives in praise for all that he has done. That in itself is pretty astonishing, isn't it? And yet actually, if we read on, we realise that Paul is actually even more delighted in something. Uh, He delights that actually through him, through saving him, Paul, uh, Jesus displays his patience in order that others might be encouraged and come to trust in him as well. Verse 16. For that very reason, I was shown mercy... Why? So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who believe on him and receive eternal life. Uh, that word example is kind of, a, almost a better way is almost talking about a first draft. He's kind of the prototype. It's a bit like uh, people can, can look at Paul and they can know, they can say, well, if, if Jesus can save Paul, then he can save anyone Uh, Paul is living proof of the patience and the power of Christ to save all who come to him. Uh, His gospel-driven testimony of what Jesus has done for him uh, displays that work of the Lord Jesus, to bring him glory and actually to bring others as well to know him too. Uh, Chuck Colson, or Charles Colson, uh, was uh, former U.S. President Nixon's uh, hatchet man, right-hand man, back in the, in the 70s. He was renowned in Washington for a pretty brutal approach to politics. He didn't want to uh, cross uh, Chuck Colson. It was like uh, House of Cards, but worse, I think, from what we uh, gather from his autobiography. Uh, his, uh, his career culminated in a jail sentence. He was involved in some pretty shady goings-on. Uh, known as the Watergate scandal, which you might well have heard of, and he ended up in prison in the States, doing time for uh, his his deeds. Uh, In prison, he discovered Jesus. He discovered the good news of Jesus, what Jesus had done for him, that Jesus had come into the world to save sinners uh, like him, and it completely transformed his life. Uh, and after he was released, uh, he, uh, he set up a number of ministries involved in commending Jesus, particularly to prisoners, people who'd known uh, what it is to be uh, punished by society for their sins. He encouraged them to encounter Jesus and to experience the transformation that he had, as, uh, had received as well. Whether we like it or not this morning, each one of us are the worst of sinners. We might not necessarily feel it, perhaps we do in some ways. But all of us are the worst of sinners because all of us have rejected God and chosen to live for ourselves. But the wonderful news of this passage is that what was true for St. Paul, what was true for Chuck Colson, is true for you and for me. Because Jesus came into the world because he became one of us, because he died on that cross to do what we could never do for ourselves, we can be saved and enjoy eternal life. We can know God's mercy. We can say, with Paul, we have been shown mercy. And when we testify of what Jesus has done for us in our lives, to the watching world, that is a a recommendation, a commendation for the work of Jesus uh, that nothing else can match. It brings glory to him, and it encourages others to see what Jesus can do for them. Uh, Let me ask us, is St. Paul's testimony your testimony this morning? Could you say the same as him this morning? Could you say that you've been shown mercy? Can you say that this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, we, are the worst. And through your testimony is Christ's work displayed? to his glory. If it's not, let me encourage you to talk to somebody afterwards. we love to talk through about what this means and how you can experience the transforming work of the Lord Jesus. Uh, But gospel-driven testimony brings glory to Christ because it displays the work of Christ. Let's move on, uh, shall we, to the second uh, half of our passage. And The second implication that Paul draws out for us is this, that gospel-driven teaching defends the word of Christ. Gospel-driven teaching defends depend, the word of Christ. Uh, if the uh, church in Ephesus is going to withstand uh, false teaching, uh, Paul knows that Timothy, as the pastor, has got some, some serious work to do on his hands. Uh, he's going to have to take action, and so it's to him he now turns in, uh, in our reading. Uh, all the evidence that we have about Timothy suggests he was uh, probably quite a young man, maybe about, around about the age of, of 30 or so. Uh, he seems to have struggled with poor health. There's references to the, in the letters to his, uh, his sort of poor health and, uh, and problems. Uh, it seems also he was quite shy, a bit diffident, didn't really like the spotlight, didn't uh, like the attention, uh, didn't, uh, didn't find that easy to cope with. Uh, I reckon it's probably true that most vicars dislike uh, conflict. Maybe there's one or two who quite enjoy it, but I certainly don't enjoy uh, conflict. Uh, And maybe Timothy was a bit like that. I can sympathise with him. Young guy, he's got a big church, they're struggling, they're fighting, all a bit difficult. And he's just not quite sure what to do. He's feeling a bit bruised, he's feeling a bit bastard. Maybe he's had a few nasty emails sent to him uh, a little bit, I don't know. Under attack. He's not sure quite what to do. How should he respond to these threats Uh, He's in need of some encouragement. And that's exactly where St. Paul starts, isn't it? You notice that verse 18. He says, Timothy, my son. What better thing could Paul have said? My son. I'm caring for you. I'm loving for you. You're not on your own here. You might feel like it when everyone's firing off emails and criticizing you and uh, things all seem to be going wrong. But you're not on your own. You've got my love. You've got my support uh, to count on. Uh, Great encouragement for Timothy. But not only does he have Paul's support, but actually Paul reminds him that he has the support of the wider church as well, and the authority of God, who has called him to be a minister of the gospel in his church. Verse 18, he says, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Uh, Timothy hadn't decided of his own accord to be ordained. He hadn't just decided that would be a nice thing to do and wander off and uh, go on the internet and uh, tap out and and find somebody to ordain him. Uh, He had his call recognised by the local church and it had been confirmed by prophecies. And you can read more about that in Acts um, chapter 16, about his experience of being called to uh, the Christian ministry. Uh, Paul was reminding him here a really important thing. Uh, He's not here by accident. He's in his position because God has called him and he carries with him God's authority. When things get tough, those are two critical things to remember. He's not on his own because Paul uh, is supporting him, he's there, but critically he's there because God has put him there and God has called him. But with that authority, Paul says, there is a significant responsibility, again verse 18, that by following them you may fight the good fight. Make no mistake, Timothy is in a serious spiritual battle. He's got to take up arms. He's got to contend for the true faith, hold on to the true faith that was delivered to him by Paul and the other apostles. Whatever happens, he must never let go of the gospel that he was given to to proclaim. There'll be others who'll try and knock it out of his hands, who'll try and distract him from it, who'll try and force him to let go of it, and to go off in another direction. But Paul says, you must hang on to it for all you're worth. You must fight it. You know, I was watching uh, the rugby yesterday, and I was struck just how some of the, the, uh, the, the players, they just hang on so tightly to the ball as they'd be sort of driving. There'd be all these people, players trying to grab it and pull it off them and pull them down and get it off them. It's a bit like that with Timothy and Paul. Paul says to Timothy, hang on to it. Keep going, keep going, keep going for the line. Don't let it go. Never let it drop. Hang on for all it's worth. It all seems rather removed, doesn't it, from the picture we have, or most people have, I guess, of what it means to be a vicar. Most people think vicars are pretty mild, they're pretty ineffectual, they drink cups of tea with old ladies, everyone likes them, they ride around on their bicycles, they're all very friendly and very nice, they never upset anybody at all. This fighting language seems completely inappropriate. What's Paul doing? Is he being a bit intense? Is he being a bit fanatical? It sounds a bit extreme, doesn't it? What's he going on about? But actually, as we read on, he's got a very, very good reason for saying these things. He's got a good reason for being intense. Why? Because he tells us that actually eternity is at stake. Verse 19. That some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Already, some have let go of the gospel. They've come a shipwreck, they've come a cropper. Their faith has been shipwrecked, they've hit the rocks. And if Timothy doesn't take his responsibilities seriously, it's only going to get worse. might happen more. It's that serious. We can start to understand, can't we, Paul's urgency here. We're not playing games here, Timothy. This is a serious business. People's lives are at stake here. We can understand Paul's own action. He says that he already, he's removed some of the culprits, verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander I've handed over to Satan to be taught, not to blaspheme. I think that just means he's he's just said to them, look, you can't be part of the church fellowship uh, until things are sorted out, you've repented, and you've come back to the gospel. A gospel-driven teaching ministry takes seriously that task of defending the word of Christ. The word of Christ, the faith which the church confesses that the church has handed on through the years. Without it... Ruin will always follow. Uh, No less a figure than John Stott uh, has said this. uh, The church is only ever a generation away from extinction. The church is only ever a generation away from extinction. Uh, What he means, I think, is that all it takes is for the next generation to fail to pick up the baton that the generation before them has passed on to them. They let go of the gospel. It slips between their fingers and they get distracted to something else. It's true at all levels, I'm afraid. It's true in denominations. There are denominations across this land, across the world, who have let go of the gospel. They've shrunk. Uh, they've got smaller and smaller. They've become irrelevant. Some of them are virtually on their last legs if they haven't died already. It's true of local churches, sadly. Even in our own city of Norwich, if you look at the history of churches, St Peter Hungate in the city centre uh, a few centuries ago was a centre of gospel teaching. It was a huge church. People flocked from miles around to hear God's word expounded and taught and to worship God because they recognized it was gospel teaching. What is it now? It's a museum. It's closed. If you'd asked the congregation of St. Peter's Hungate 200 years ago if they'd seen that happening, they would have laughed at us. And yet it's happened because they lost the gospel. It happens to individuals. Perhaps we can think of people who we knew were keen. Maybe they were keen in the CU all those years ago that we knew. Or they were in our youth group many, many moons ago. And now they're nowhere. Uh, When we lose the gospel, ruin awaits. And it falls primarily to the job of pastors. Those who are tasked with teaching the word of God. To teach the flock to, to fight for it as hard as we can. It's why our own church, uh, the Church of England, has in the prayer book, in the the Book of Common Prayer, the ordinal, which is used to ordain uh, clergy. It says this, it asks them whether they are ready to banish and drive away all erroneous and strange doctrines contrary to God's word. We might think the language is a little bit quaint, but the sentiment is true. Paul would have said, yes, you are exactly right. That is what gospel ministry is about. Our own Church of England recognises that what it means to be a pastor, is to defend uh, the faith, to contend, to fight the good fight. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, this isn't relevant to me. I'm not a vicar. I'm not ordained. I'm not in a Bible teaching role. How does this apply to me? Uh, it maybe that's true. Probably it's true for almost all of us here, I suspect. But still, surely we can support and encourage those whose responsibility it is. I can assure you it's not an easy task. Uh, there are many things that I would much rather do than stir up controversy and tell people things they wouldn't like to hear. There are many, many more easy things to do on my to-do list than to do that. But to not do it is to neglect my responsibility as a pastor-teacher. It's much easier to ignore it. But if we don't do it, there's a risk, isn't there, of shipwreck and ruin, of a church, of individuals, and who knows what else. Please pray for those of us who have this responsibility, Alan and myself especially, but also for those of us who are in active teaching roles, that we would defend the gospel because gospel-driven teaching takes that task seriously, defending the word of Christ. What is it that drives us at Holy Trinity this morning? What is it? Is it getting bums on pews? Is it the finances? Uh, Is it the gospel? If we've grasped Paul's words this morning... I think we will want and pray that it is the gospel that drives us. It's the gospel that delights us. It's the gospel that drives us and directs us. Because only the gospel puts us right with God. And only the gospel is the thing that demands that we fight for it above all else. Let's pray, shall we? Well, Jesus, we do uh, read these words. And there is great encouragement here. We thank you so much that uh, you came into the world to save sinners like us. Thank you, that was Paul's uh, hope. Thank you that it's our hope this morning. It's not based on what we do, but it's based on what you have done. And yet we do realise that uh, with that comes responsibility. We pray that we will be a church that hangs on to the gospel at all costs. We will be driven by it, shaped by it, centred on it. Help us to be faithful, we pray. Amen.